1 Kings 8. You don't have to turn there, but after the priests took the Ark of the Covenant to the newly built temple in Jerusalem, God took up His residence there on earth. But Israel, of course, would reject their Lord, break the covenant, try to worship other gods alongside Him, eventually not worship Him at all. Eventually, Jerusalem is destroyed. The people were taken away into exile in Babylon. Shortly before that first temple was destroyed, Ezekiel the prophet saw the glory of God leave the temple. In Ezekiel 10, I believe. After their exile was over, the rebuilt second temple in Ezra 6, 13-18 lacked the glory and beauty of that first temple, so much so that the people even wept when it was completed and they saw it and remembered the old one. But God promised one day in Haggai 2, 1 through 9, Zechariah chapter 8 and 9, to fill the temple with an even greater glory than the old temple had. That promise comes to fulfillment here in Luke 2, 21 to 40. When the King of Glory from Psalm 24, 7 through 10 finally comes in and the Lord Himself comes to His temple as prophesied in Malachi 3, 1. Only when this greater glory of the Lord finally comes to His temple, He comes as a person, as a baby. God with us in the flesh. How could this be the glory of God that the prophets saw? How could it be a baby, let alone a person at all? The greatest display of the glory of God is the appearance of salvation and consolation for all humanity. Jesus is the sword that kills us in our pride and sets us free in His peace. Let me pray. Our Father, we are thankful this day for Your Word. It is perfect. It is sure and certain. It is eternal. And God, I pray that as I speak, You would help me to preach it like it is. God, overshadow and consume me that Your Word might be what comes from my mouth and not my own this day. Please, Father, and please help everyone in this room, regardless of their age, regardless of the state of their heart when they came in this room, to listen and believe and receive this Word. I ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for His sake. Amen. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when He was circumcised, He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before He was conceived in the womb. This very brief account of the circumcision of Jesus, which is what happened to every Jewish boy according to the law, signals a transition from the birth narrative to the presentation of Jesus in the temple. He was most likely circumcised at home in, or, or back in Bethlehem, beginning his mission of fulfillment on the eighth day, which is, of course, the first day of the new week of God's creation as it's thought of. This will also be the day of his resurrection. But His obedience to the law for us here involves the shedding of His blood for what is only the first time. It's at the moment He does this that He receives the name the angel gave Him in chapter 1, verse 31. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Old Testament name Joshua. It can be rendered Savior or God is salvation. This is what Matthew tells us in his Gospel that this name means Jesus is called this because He will save His people from their sins. And His destiny of being the atoning sacrifice that will shed His blood for us is evident on just the eighth day of His life. 
in his circumcision and in the name he's given. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So 33 days later, and 70 weeks after the announcement of John's birth to Zechariah by the angel Gabriel, the Lord comes to his temple to fulfill the law for the second time. We're told that he's doing this, that Mary and Joseph are doing this also five times in this text. Verse 22, 23, 24, later in 27 and 39. Jesus' parents are not only keeping the old covenant law, they're also fulfilling it by bringing Jesus to his true home, the temple. They offer the alternative sacrifice of two turtle doves or two pigeons, Leviticus 12, verse 8, and the law allowed for that instead of a lamb, since not everybody could afford one. They were truly of humble estate. And of course, when you think about it, they did bring a lamb. They brought the lamb because God, as promised, had provided him for the sacrifice. It was actually God who provided them with their offering. In a very real sense, no actual lamb was necessary because already here at 40 days old, Jesus is the lamb brought to his temple for sacrifice. Verse 25. <clears throat> now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So a man named Simeon is introduced here, just like the other Old Testament saints in this narrative, like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. He's a righteous member of the community of Israel. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Holy Spirit, whose primary task it was and remains to testify to Jesus for us. We technically don't know for sure, but it seems that Simeon was an older man, was on the edge of death. But whatever his age, the promise of the Messiah is more important than anything to him because now that he's seen that this has come to pass, he's able to depart in peace from his life after he's finally seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed one. All his life he'd been waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation means he lived in expectation of hope and comfort from God that he would keep his word, that he would send salvation and keep his promises to Israel. This is the inauguration of the messianic age. And now he's not only heard that God has done this, He's seen it with his own eyes. And I, I want us to keep focusing on this from the birth narrative. What it is that people took in when they heard and saw that Jesus had come. It's so important for us. The faithful remnant in Israel lived with a sense of expectation and longing because they believed the word of the Lord. That's precisely what made them the faithful remnant. That's still the case, beloved. The faithful are not those who can be known so much by their great works necessarily, but by their expectant hope and faith in God's promise to us. Simeon's song here, you can call it in verses 29 to 32, is a 
beautiful example, another example of the immediate response, the appropriate response to the inauguration of God's consolation and redemption in this little baby. This song is inspired directly by the Holy Spirit. It's thoroughly, therefore, messianic in nature. It's focused on Jesus and what He's going to do. Remember, Simeon had been told by God that he would not taste death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. That is, the Messiah. What he says here is at the heart of this section, the fulfillment of God's promise brings peace to us. Simeon's peace came because he saw God's salvation that he prepared in the presence of all people. So God didn't bring Jesus into the world through an unknown young virgin and in a backwater town cloaked in obscurity because he wanted to hide it from anybody, but because he wanted everyone to know that they could have this child and what this child is bringing. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Simeon sees the consolation of Israel as a gift of God actually to the whole world. Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This child will reveal God's desire to graft Gentiles into His one true vine. God has desired since He made the covenant with Abraham to include those outside the ethnic family of Israel in His true people, His one people. The whole world. From the whole world. That is part of what Jesus will make known about God. And Jesus is also glory to God's old covenant people, Israel. Because this child, the true seed of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of David, the son of God, will fulfill every promise God made to Israel in His accomplishment of redemption through His life, death, and resurrection. It's so sad that we tend to relegate salvation to the background when it comes to Israel and God's promises. We talk about the fact that one new man has been created in place of the two in Ephesians 2 and 3, as though that only pertains to salvation, though, not the land promise. Jews and Gentiles are one in the sense of salvation, of course, but not in the sense of the physical promises to Israel. Beloved, does anyone really think the land is a bigger deal than salvation for sinners? Salvation is the ultimate realization of God's plan for Israel and for the world. Salvation is the essence of God's promise to Abraham, not land. Not a tiny strip of land in the Middle East. This is the song of Simeon, the nuke, the Medus. It's been called throughout church history. God's word lets his servants go in peace because of what that word says and what that word does for sinners. He sets free those who trust in his word. But, but, there's a tragic flip side to this. Not all will receive the peace that leads to freedom. And it's not because Jesus is inaccessible. God sent Him as a baby to prove that He's not. This is because we don't want someone else to win our peace for us. We don't want someone else to save us. We want to save ourselves. And the Bible is going to prove that and shout it from the mountaintop in places like this. Verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts 
may be revealed. Speaking to Mary, Simeon next prophesies about the destiny of this child. But as the previous words brought peace, these words are and bring a warning. Many Jews, most of them in fact, will fall and rise as they meet Jesus. He's a stumbling block to everyone, including his own disciples, and eventually even to his own family, his own blood family on earth because of the nature of his ministry and his kingdom. It's a part of the destiny of Jesus to be a sign that is opposed by many. Opposed? Why? The infancy narrative introduces themes that are fleshed out and realized in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, towards the end of Luke, Jesus will tell a parable about the workers in the vineyard, the religious leaders of Israel who reject and murder the master's son, saying, Jesus saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Luke 20 17. His application of those words to the scribes and Pharisees of Israel in Luke 20, 18 is echoing what Simeon says here to Mary. Everyone who falls on this stone will be dashed to pieces. This is Jesus speaking in Luke 20. And on whomever it falls, it will crush him. But what does Simeon mean here when he says in verse 35 that a sword will pierce through, pierce through Mary's soul also? What about this child and what he's come to bring could possibly be so offensive? Generally speaking, gifts are not offensive. They're wonderful. A wonderful joy and blessing to receive. Surely, no one would actually begrudge Jesus and hate Him for coming to save them. I mean, you could understand that somebody doesn't want to be saved and so they kind of are like, no, I, I got it, thank you. But they don't hate the person trying to save them and oppose the person trying to save them. Surely we wouldn't reject the grace of God with resentment and bitterness at Him for, for desiring to pour it out on us. We can understand how Jesus would cause many to rise, but to fall? How? Why? There are generally three ways to interpret this sword passing through Mary's soul. The most popular maybe is that Simeon is prophesying about how much the cross on which Jesus will suffer his death is going to hurt Mary and break her heart. And it certainly would and will. Another brings out another way to view it brings out the idea that like the disciples later on, she misunderstood his identity. Another interpretation corresponding to Luke's earlier portrayal of Mary as the personification of all Israel sees the sword as God's revelation in Jesus' words and deeds throughout His ministry. That's the sword. The word of revelation brought by Jesus will pass through Israel like a sword, revealing their secret thoughts, the true nature of their hearts. So, just as Jesus will fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 49.6 by being a light of revelation to the Gentiles, He will also fulfill the role assigned to God's servant in Isaiah 49.2. And that his message will actually feel like a sharp sword. I think it's this latter interpretation that makes the most sense out of Simeon's statement to Mary that a sword will even pierce through her soul so that, the text says, so that thoughts from many hearts, many hearts will be revealed. A sword will pass through Mary's soul so that the thoughts of many souls, many hearts will be revealed. If the sword piercing Mary refers only to her own sorrow or personal misunderstandings, it's hard to see how that would reveal the thoughts of many hearts, right? If it's just her being 
so brokenhearted by the cross, how, how will that reveal many hearts? But if the sword is Jesus is preaching, which pierces Israel, represented here by this one Israelite woman, Mary, then the statement actually makes perfect sense. The fact that Jesus' message will pierce the soul of his own, remember, devoutly faithful mother, is a staggering warning to all of us this morning. To all of us. Maybe especially the believers in the room. Throughout Luke's Gospel, the thoughts of many are revealed by their reactions to Jesus and His message. Mary, the woman, as part of Israel, and as the mother of Jesus, will feel the pain of Jesus' words and crucifixion. She herself will be pierced by Jesus' teaching. Especially when He talks about how blood relationships actually give way to the new family of the church. All believers, including Mary, will belong to this family, which is made up only of those who hear the Word of God and keep it, Luke 8, 19 through 21. And of course, she will be pierced at the cross as she watches her son die a horrible death by crucifixion. But the whole world will feel pain in one way or another because of the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, from now on in Luke, the preaching of Jesus, the sword of revelation, will pass through Israel, producing total misunderstanding and ignorance by almost everyone concerning his person and his destiny. It'll begin almost right away in Luke 4 in his own hometown where he grew up of Nazareth. We would not expect, after reading all about the light that is dawning and the merciful visitation of God to Zechariah and Elizabeth, to Mary and to the shepherds, that Simeon's announcement that Jesus will be the revealer of salvation in verses 29 to 32 would lead to conflict. But it will. He will cause huge upheavals in Israel. The hearts of many will be revealed and the revelation will not be pretty. It is going to be impossible for Israel and for the whole world to avoid Jesus or what He comes to say. Many will be scandalized, even crushed by this rock that is Jesus. His death and resurrection will become the center of dispute for all human history. Why? What exactly is going on here? This is good news. It's good news. Before we answer, there's one more confirmation of who this child is in these verses. All right. Pick it up in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna carries out the exact same function the shepherds did at the birth of Jesus. Right? We can tell from the way she's introduced that there's a parallel between her and Simeon in terms of their purpose in the narrative. They're both associated with the temple and the presence of God. Simeon is the herald of good news like the angels had been. Anna responds to this good news like the shepherds by spreading the message of God's blessing to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Now, that's a very specific audience, isn't it? There, there were those who were waiting for something from God, but it wasn't redemption. Jesus will infuriate those whose waiting is for the wrong thing and not for redemption. 
Anna heard what Simeon said. She interprets his words to be about redemption, our atonement through the blood of Jesus Christ. The fact that this child will be an offense, a sign who will be opposed, and his destiny of death and resurrection as the Savior are now established on the testimony of two witnesses, as the Old Testament required. Numbers 35.30, Deuteronomy 17.6, not one word of the law will be voided by Jesus. Not one word. Verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So the scene shifts from the temple in Jerusalem to the village of Nazareth in Galilee, where Jesus was raised. Everything required by the law of the Lord for a baby has been done. And Luke summarizes Jesus' life from day 40 to age 12 with these words. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor, the grace of God was upon him. That this is the case will be revealed in the next story to close chapter 2, which we'll get into, God willing, next week. Now, the center of this section is the blessing and the word of warning from Simeon. So we need to revisit and focus on the question it raised in verses 34 and 35. And I asked it earlier, after all this wonderful news and these gracious proclamations of God's salvation visiting us, how is it exactly, why is it exactly, that the proclamation of Jesus will pass through Israel and the rest of history like a sword that pierces our souls? Why will all of this lead to conflict rather than a worldwide celebration from everyone because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Of thanksgiving and relief. I mean, the Bible says that even Mary's soul would be pierced by this sword. Why does Jesus cause so much conflict? Now, I think... The standard answer or assumption is that, well, Jesus causes so much conflict and anger and hostility because he came to renounce sin. And people love sin. They love their own desires. We love our own flesh. So, of course, Jesus calling people to repentance will cause some major problems. Surely that's why they eventually even did something crazy like crucifying Jesus, because he spoke out against sin. If you speak out against sin today, you certainly feel the world's hostility. So, this has to be what Simeon meant about Jesus piercing like a sword and revealing what's really deep inside all of our hearts, right? That's how we show we're unashamed of the gospel, right? And that we're faithful. We get out there and renounce sin and renounce what the world is doing and tell people to stop it and shape up and we'll be hated like Jesus, right? No. We don't condone sin. We don't condone anything the Bible calls sin. We don't sweep it under the rug. We don't pretend like there's no need for repentance. Absolutely not. But is that why, as the Bible sees it, Jesus was a sign that is opposed, and not just for the rise of many in Israel, but the fall of many in Israel, and will pierce like a sword. Swords don't do precision surgery. Swords lay you wide open. And you bleed out and die. And your organs are punctured and severed by them. Or maybe even your limbs. Ask yourself a question, okay? In, in your own heart. Those of you who know your New Testament well, alright? I want you to 
Think for a minute, beloved. With whom did Jesus cause the most problems? Who was he almost always in conflict with? Who were the most openly hostile to Jesus? Who was it that plotted to have him killed? Ask yourself these things. Was it the tax collectors and the gluttons and the prostitutes and those that by and large were considered sinners? Because their sins are obvious. You can call them sinners. As they were called in Jerusalem. As they're still called here in Moundsville and Morgantown and Columbus and San Francisco and New York City, etc. Was it them, the sinners, the, the obvious sinners? Were they the ones that stood at a distance from Jesus and weren't a part of His inner circle? Were they the ones constantly mad at Him because it seemed that He wouldn't welcome them? After all, is certainly who we don't want to get close to today as Christians. We don't want to get close to the sinners. People will think we're one of them if we break bread with Him. I mean, Jesus was called a glutton. He was called a drunkard. He was called a tax collector. Jesus was never called a Pharisee. But people might think we're sinners too, so you've got to distance yourself from bad people. They'll think that you're a sinner. Oh no! God calls us to be holy, so we have to stay away from evil people like that. And that's how people will know we're Christians, because we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't date girls who do. Right? For those of you on social media, okay, Facebook, Twitter, these things, Instagram, what's the steady diet? I, I want you to, to think now, okay? What's the steady diet of what Christians post about usually, usually on social media? Is most Christian content that you see about Jesus' forgiveness for sinning, or is it mostly focused on behavior? and what you should be doing and shouldn't be doing. It's become a very popular topic in our home because there's a segment of Christianity right now, and these are brothers and sisters, and so I, I don't, but it is, it's like their whole platform right now is the issue of modesty. Interestingly, it's only about women and only about what women should be doing. And, women should, and these are all men speaking. But that's the whole platform. Every post. Every post. I'd read the one if it wasn't disgusting that I caught just a few days ago. But, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about the length of skirts and, and leggings and all these kinds of things, right? And just, it's just non-stop. Women, you shouldn't be doing this. And if you do this and you wear this, then you're, you know, the names, I mean, I'm, I'm not making that up, all right? I'm not going to read it here, but I'm not, I'm not making it up, okay? So there's no talk of forgiveness of sins in that, just that you should be modest. So imagine you're an unbelieving woman seeing that. And, and you're going to think right, wrong, or indifferent. So that's what Christianity is about. And that's, that's what I'm trying to say, is the steady diet. Most of what our brothers and sisters in Christ are posting, is it about the forgiveness of sins or about behavior? Morality shaping up. I have a dear friend, and I didn't say anything on his post because I love this man. He was a um, wonderful man, faithful pastor, and he, he put up a thing the other day that said, um, 
or what was it? It was a, like, I think it was Clint Eastwood, great prophet of the faith. And he's going like this, and it says, uh, you might memorize the Bible, but are you living it? Okay, it's a fair question. Is that the gospel? Is that the gospel? Right? And so, social media is usually not about the forgiveness of sins. For the most part, though, we all know we're sinners. It's not really what people deny, right? We all know we've sinned against God and are guilty. Most of us know that we do not do the things that we ought to do, whether we're Christians or not. Jesus pierces souls not mainly because He calls us to repentance. He pierces our souls because we don't think we need a Savior like Jesus. And God is saying, we do. What is really offensive to human beings about Jesus is not that He's come to deal with sin, but that our greatest sin is our refusal to let Him do all the work of saving us by His blood and His righteousness rather than our own blood, our own sweat, our own tears, and our own righteousness. It's that He's mainly come to do away with the sin of our pride in wanting to earn our salvation or not believe that we need it because of or by our works. That is what makes grace feel like a sword. How could we be that helpless? How could we be that sinful, even if we're a good person? And they do exist in a worldly sense, who tries really hard and does really well, that never commits adultery, that hasn't murdered, that doesn't usually lose their temper, that gives a lot to charity. You mean to tell me that I need the cross? I need Jesus? I need the Son of God to die for me? How could all our righteousness, really all of it, be like filthy, stinking rags to God? Look up the Hebrew on that sometime. The translations are being really nice and clean there. How can it all, all of it be rags to God? You mean to tell me that if I've given 50 years of my life to being a good person, and I tried as hard as I can, and I took care of my family, and I voted for the right candidates, and I did the right things, that my righteousness is like stinking rags to God? And so I have to have the righteousness of Jesus or God will never accept me? Forgiveness infuriates people. Right? That's what really infuriates people. What, what, if, what if right before the bullet passed through his head, Osama bin Laden, having heard the gospel at some point in his life, cries out for forgiveness and mercy? Will he get it? Really? Oh, yes. He would have. So God will accept him because he prayed a prayer and not me when I've done my best my entire life to be a good person. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Oh, that's the Pharisees. We want God to recognize us and accept us based on what we do and don't do, just like the Pharisees did. We want it to be math, not grace. They were mad at Jesus. Why? Why were they mad at Him? 
Why were the upstanding moral people so mad at Jesus? Because he ate with what they saw as sinners. When if they would have realized that they were too, they would have been invited into the banquet. The father in the story of the prodigal son entreats the older brother who's mad that his younger brother got grace. And the master of the house, the father, says to the older, you've always been my son. Come in here and eat with us. What are you doing out here mad? Because we're throwing a party for your brother. He's lost and he's found. Get in here. This meal is for you too. Jesus even wants Pharisees. We do not want God's welfare any more than we want regular welfare. Have you ever stood in a line to get food stamps or ever had to pay when it wasn't a nice look like a debit card, but you got the books of paper? I hated that when I was a kid. It was so embarrassing. I know it was embarrassing for my parents. Because look, when, when you're poor, like poor, and everybody's poor, they're going to find the one kid they can make fun of and still make fun of him for being poor. Like it stinks to be poor, to need welfare. It's embarrassing. It hurts our pride to be in such a state of need and desperation that somebody else has to do everything for us. We hate it. We work hard so that that's never us. And imagine working as hard as you can and you still can't get out of it, right? And just in case you think I'm overreaching here, ask yourself who it was that wanted to murder Jesus. Yes, murder Him in the most brutal way possible. It was those who had such long lists of good works and obedience tallied up that if anyone was going to try to stand on their own merit, it would have been them and it would have made sense. We're we're getting one side of the Pharisees because they hated Jesus so much. But remember, these were good, solid, religious, devout men. Let me give you one more piece of evidence that we're so naturally opposed to grace that we would rather die trying than to let Jesus save us. So, there are all kinds of labels for our culture nowadays. And one of them, one of the things that picks up on what's going on in our culture now is it's called tipping culture. You've experienced it. Everybody wants a tip now. And no, you're not about to get a lecture on why you should tip everybody. I don't. So let's lay that out right now. I'm criticizing myself here. Not exalt. I don't. Just hear me out. You go to Subway. You've been there. You've been going to Subway. We've been going to Subway since the early 80s. We love Subway. Now, all of a sudden, when you get to the point at the end where you go to check out, they flip that machine around and ask you if you will tip. They do this at Starbucks. Whether they make you 50 drinks or pour a coffee, they're going to spin that thing around. There's a screen there for the tip. You want to tip? Just go ahead and push the button. Right? Everywhere. Everywhere. Right? Barb, I mean, of course, barbers have for a while, but, but everybody wants a tip. And, and we, 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 we mock that, and I do too. We don't want to do that. Why? Because you didn't earn it. And you don't get stuff you don't earn. How dare you ask me to give you a gift when you didn't earn it? This is ridiculous. They want to tip everywhere. They want to tip probably at Bath and Body Works. You want tips. It's like, 
what is this? Like, there's a natural, like, we're mad. Like, a tip. If you want me to give you above and beyond what you deserve, you need to earn it. Give you a tip. Just give you money for free? You made me a sandwich. You poured me a coffee. You put something in a bag. Like, when, when you go to get carry out, they want a tip. Like, I'm doing the work. You didn't deliver it. We naturally reject, we hate the idea that you should get anything for free. And we really hate it when other people ask for stuff for free. And the better what you get is, the harder you should have to work to earn it. Nothing is free. You ever hear people say that? Nothing should be free. You should work for everything you get. That is why Jesus is a sword. That right there. Because he reveals that at our core, we actually hate the idea of grace. The preaching of Jesus passed through Israel like a sword to foreshadow how he would pass through all history like a sword. Because by nature, we are all Pharisees. None of us wants what Jesus is giving. Not by nature. The fact that Jesus would cut through Israel and reveal what's on the inside and what's there is not good and not pleasing to God, but is filled with sin and pride in Israel. That ought to shake us to our core. They hadn't even measured up. Do you know how biblically sound and literate the Pharisees were? The scribes and the lawyers, how well they knew their scriptures, how careful they were to obey. Why weren't they welcoming Jesus with open arms? Why did they plot to have him murdered in the most brutal way possible? And how, if they would have had knives, how many times would they have stabbed him? These were some of the most devout, religious, obedient, scripturally literate people on the face of the earth in all history. These were the people, remember, God called out of Egypt and delivered through the miraculous signs of the Exodus. These were the people God had carried along with a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. He'd given them the Ark of the Covenant, the law to guide them, the Old Covenant sacrificial system and the priests, the temple, the dynasty of King David. And had even delivered them from exile when they disobeyed Him and broken the covenant. They were waiting for the Messiah that they believed God would send. Don't ever forget that. So why did they reject Him so harshly when He finally came? That's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. Because they'd gotten it in their minds that the Messiah was coming to reward and recognize them for their service. That God had chosen them because they deserved it. And so if they had been serious enough about the law and their obedience and their good works, surely God would give to them all the glory and honor for their righteousness. So the one who comes to say, you have sinned and fallen short of my glory, your good works are not enough. Your obedience is so subpar, it's offensive to me that you even try. But you can rest now. I will carry all the weight for you. I will accomplish your salvation. I still love you. I'll forgive you of your sins. I'll give you my righteousness. And you'll no longer be required to provide your own. I'm even going to give this gift to the whole world now. So that whoever believes in me will have everlasting life. None is excluded. None is turned away. I'm going to do everything for you and give it to you as a gift that is rejected by Israel and by the world and by everyone because we have this disease in us. It's not just a propensity to sin. 
do bad things. That's not all we got from the fall of Adam. We also got something much more sinister because we can't recognize it as a problem. In fact, we even consider it an advantage, the desire to please God and impress Him on our own. I heard one pastor say the fall wasn't as much of a fall as it was a reach upwards. God, we're able to rule ourselves. We don't need your word. We can provide for ourselves. We can accomplish everything on our own. We'll make you very proud. We'll do all this on our own. It's the sin of pride, and we're consumed by it. And in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And beloved, the word of God is a person. Jesus, the Christ. He opens up and lays us bare by revealing that we don't want forgiveness and righteousness from the outside as a gift. What we really want God to do is recognize our work and reward us for it. We'll struggle with that our whole lives, Christians or not. And there's only one offering God will accept, and it isn't ours. It's Jesus. It's just Jesus. We must all recognize how naturally bent against Jesus and His grace we really are. All of us must. This morning, and most certainly I am included. We, we have to recognize the subtle ways we still want to put in something, though. Have some skin in the game of our salvation. That's sin. That's what that is. That's pride. That's unbelief. God says you need this. When you say to Him, but I would like to give this, you're rejecting His Word. That's not a small thing. It just doesn't look as bad as drug addiction. Perhaps the best example of how this works. I know I've gone a little long this morning, but please bear with me. Maybe the best example of how this works, even for believers, is what happened when Jesus went to wash the Apostle Peter's feet. Absolutely not, Jesus. You will not wash my feet. I will not let you humble yourself that far and serve me like that. Absolutely not. It's blasphemous. It's ridiculous. Get up. Do not wash my feet. I will not let you wash my feet. He meant so well in that moment. He's being so pious and devoted and honorable. And I'm not being facetious. He absolutely is. Because why would you let the second person of the Trinity, who is eternally existent with God the Father, bend down and wash your crusty, disgusting feet? And then Jesus says the words that we must come to love. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Of all the things He could say that make it so you don't have a part with Him, it's that. See, there's not a sin of commission at the front of that phrase. If you go that far in sin, you have no part with me. If you commit that sin, you have no part with me. If you struggle with that sin for the rest of your life and try to repent to me 70 times every single day for it, 
you have no part with me. No, 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 no. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Then Peter's eyes are open, like, and he gets it. And this is it. This is it. Oh, then not just my feet, but also my head and my hands. And then Jesus will tell them, you're all already clean by the word that I have spoken to you. That's how powerful the word of the gospel is. It washes. It cleans. And the dirtier you are, the better it cleans. The word that lays us open like a sword, it heals us and cleanses us and sets us free. Now that I don't have to earn my salvation, I can give every ounce of energy I have left serving my neighbor and loving my neighbor and even my enemies. This is our consolation. This is salvation. See, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You're going to have to let Jesus serve you and wash you, or He'll have nothing to do with you. The hardest cross for the Christian to bear is the nagging sense that it's all too good to be true. And we must still be responsible for something when it comes to our salvation. So much so that we'll doubt and disbelieve and lose our assurance over it. Our own desire to please God on our own is the greatest enemy we face. It's the greatest enemy we face. See, you're looking at the world and saying that's the greatest enemy we face without question. That we don't believe the gospel. What's the church's, why is, why is the church increasingly ineffective in culture? Because we don't preach the gospel. Telling people to shape up is what everybody in the world does. What's the big deal about that? Commercials tell you to get it together. Nutritionists and fitness coaches tell you to get it together. Fashion designers tell you to get it together. Financial advisors tell you to get it together. There's nothing in the law to save. We get it every day from a thousand different sources. The gospel is the one rebellion left. That's it. Just Jesus Nothing else. Enjoy it. It's free. Go love and serve people. It's all taken care of. You have to stop trying this morning. You have to stop trying. It's finished. You're accepted. He loves you. Stop it. Stop. So we must repent not just of our obvious sins, but of our ongoing attempts to be righteous on our own. Not even our best works are completely pure anyway. We're, we're never free from committing sins. And we're never doing enough good works. Not ever. Not ever. How offensive it is to God to offer Him filthy rags and think that He will take them. He doesn't save us for trying to be perfect. Or for even caring about whether or not we are more than the schmuck in the other pew does. We are never living in such a way that at least in this moment, we don't need the blood of Jesus and His righteousness 
to be saved. But Tony, doesn't Jesus call us to do good works? Of course He does. And you should. And you will. But why are you so anxious to make sure you're pulling your weight? Why? Why do you always have to put a comma on grace? Do you not need it that badly? Do you think you can come to the end of any day and say, Today, today, I didn't actually need Jesus to do all of it. What do you really believe about salvation? What are you so worried about? Have you ever thought about that? Are you nervous for you or for other people that might think it's all free while you, being more like Peter, knowing that Jesus is too good to just wash your feet, think that you shouldn't be that needy though? Nobody should be that needy asking for a tip when you didn't do enough work. Jesus is the sword that sets us free from all of this. And I'm telling you, this is the path to the good works we all want to do. You must realize that you're free. It's over. He paid it all. All. Finished. So let the sword lay us open that we might be truly 